Another minute, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cheers for that. I uh, thought I'd jump on early as well. Um, whereabouts are you? Brighton. Okay, cool. Is that where you're from? Nah, I've been here over 20 years though. Where are you? I'm in Manchester. Nice. I lived in Chilton for a while. Oh, really? Whereabouts? When? Oh, man, probably about six years ago or something oh, okay yeah nice place southern ponces that moves to chorlton <laughs> southern let's go isn't it yeah i know what you mean yeah it's like the uh start new into manchester or something yeah on the bbc twats yeah oh that's true yeah <laughs> um but yeah yeah thanks for doing this mel i've been really enjoying listening to your music this this week um don't know if it's because of the weather, but it kind of like matches the weather, I think. Very uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just back to where it all started, really. Am I right in thinking you were a documentary filmmaker before the music? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I was doing it for probably like 10 years or something. Um, just coming home from work and monkeying around on my sampler. I'd, I'd be off around the world making generally programs about like bog bodies and mummies and skeletons and stuff like that for some reason that seemed to be what, what we specialized in so um so yeah I, I did that for a while um and all all the while I was kind of you know coming home and and slogging over it for like 10 years probably or it was, it was probably like 20 years in the making the go team really you know from from sort of student days when I had always wanted to bands to be a bit more schizo schizophrenic and a bit more clashy and stuff like that even back in those days i was um into that idea but it took it took decades for it to be realized you know yeah and i was looking at the um listening party you did with tim burgess and he kind of said you know a lot of the songs sound like they could be like tv theme tunes or something like that did it kind of influence the music the work you were doing not so much that, but I'd be lying if I said as a kid, my ears wouldn't, you know, my eyes, my ears would prick up whenever I heard a, a, a theme tune, particularly an action packed one. And I've always kind of had an interest in theme tunes. They seem to be like a sort of 30 second distillation of the essence of the program. And they're often better than the program, you know, they're kind of the more dynamic and, um, yeah so as as a kid i would kind of think hang on what is what what's so good about you know the charlie's angels theme or something like that you know or and try and decode it and think you know what is it what's so good about this and it, it seems to be like music but heightened it seemed to be kind of like an amped up version of music um theme tunes do particularly back in the day you know so that that's kind of in there but i think people might overstate that as well um but you know simultaneously i'm from a kind of a noisy background you know i'm i think that's that was kind of my entry into music was kind of noisy guitars and stuff so i think maybe people might assume with the go team that it's i'm from a clubby background or sort of more like um 
I don't know, someone like Bentley Rhythm Ace or Avalanches or something, which I think they're from more of a kind of a clubby DJ kind of background. I'm from a kind of a noise guitar background. So um, that element of kind of chaos and noise kind of is kind of what separates us, I think, from those kind of more dancey acts. It's that kind of um, aesthetic of chaos and noise which is kind of my roots um it kind of permeates all of all of the music you know even if it is apparently a kind of a um i don't know some sunshine funk song or something like that you know i think hopefully that that aesthetic of that four tracky feedbacky noisy aesthetic kind of permeates it all you know yeah yeah and then with like the get it together ep mm. like what, what was the catalyst for pulling that together well that was that was really just what what the 10 years had, had culminated in you know I'd, I'd arrived at the first song which i thought i could call a go team song you know which was get it together it was um quite a strange song but it kind of touched on everything i was into you know from the jackson five sort of electro um the kind of harmonics are a bit kind of sonic youthy and it's got a banjo in there and it so it was kind of pulling you in all these di- different directions at the same time it was a a song which I hadn't really heard anyone do before so that was the first song uh more than anything else on the EP when I could go okay that's it that that's what the go team is you know and that was back in 2000 man so that was like fucking 24 years ago um but yeah, so that was the kicking off point. And then I, it was a question of kind of adding to it and, and kind of, I almost thought of it as creating a world, a parallel dimension, a um, a kind of a, a schizophrenic, uh, technicolor parallel dimension where all of these things could coexist, you know, um, and without it sounding forced or try hard or anything. So so that was the game the game was on then to try and nail that idea and um and obsessively go through find these samples and layer them with other stuff and um uh yeah so it, it would they would exist for years as the, as these little cassettes with little ideas on them so it would have the intro to lady flash on one cassette and then the the middle eight on another one or something like that so over time i would try these things next to each other and over years they kind of um arrange themselves into what seemed like an album a coherent vision you know yeah i was going to ask you about the songwriting process because i imagine it's pretty different to most of the guests we've had on so it would be just like ideas and samples that you pull together that eventually make it into one into one song yeah, I mean, I think of it more as something like hoarding or mining or something like that rather than, yeah, like you say, most bands might get in a room together and jam and they kind of arrive at it. I would I would hoard ideas and remember them and the great, the best stuff kind of, stick, kind of rises to the top and you try things next to each other. Um, so it's more like sort of trial and error than traditional songwriting, you know. And I, simultaneously, I was trying to write a song, write songs which were kind of could stand on their own as a kind of a classic bit of songwriting, but also 
try and be sort of um, clashy and juxtaposy and schizo that they would kind of jar in some way. So it's, it's like my brain split in two. I'm trying to write a classic song, which you could you could play on a guitar, but really I want to kind of fuck it up and make it quite sort of channel hoppy, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's so many great melodies like throughout the albums, but how how would you come across those? Would you come up with some what would be like influence from samples you'd get or nin- uh, ninja's just, influence? It's it's sheer graft, really. I mean, I'm I'd say melodies are what I'm most interested in, which most people might not think. Um, um, and they are really elusive. I I think you know I probably use like less than one percent of everything I write. You know, so I, I just keep going and going and going and going and going and going every day. And again, the good shit kind of reveals itself over time because you remember it and you sing it. And even my kid like sings it sometimes. So I know that, you know, that's it's a good sign. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, catchiness is a funny thing. It's, it, it's about being the right kind of catchy. And I, I think... You know, I kind of think of myself as being in the hook business. That's kind of what I'm most interested in. And and those elusive little melodies that kind of get stuck in your head in the right way. Um, that's what that's what keeps me going. You know, I'm I'm interested in the song as this perfect, potentially perfect thing, you know. Um so I'm just trying to kind of do it justice. And I, I think I don't want to waste people's time, really. You know, I think there's <laughs> too much music around. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd turn on six music and just nothing jumps out most of the time. You know, I don't think choruses are that good most of the time, you know. So I, I try and really just do a greatest hits every every time, you know. Yeah, I mean, every song's pretty immediate. That's what I got from listening this week. Like, you know, you kind of brought into it quite quickly kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, you've got to, it's it's about action as well. It's, a, it's I, I mean, people do say that you can clock a Go Team song pretty much straight away. I don't know whether that's the sort of, there are a few kind of sonic fingerprints from the kind of the, the trashy drum sound or blaring trumpets or stuff like that. Um but yeah, I, I think it's it's the classic pop song in a way is what's driving me. But but at the same time, it's not. You know, I'm I'm kind of split all the time um, because pop can be the best and the worst thing you've ever heard. You know, <laughs> you know, it can be steps or it could be I want you back, Jackson Five. You know, you know. <laughs> so um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then just like the recording techniques, obviously it's like a lo-fi kind of vibe to it. Um, you mentioned the four track, like how is that how you'd record in the early days? Um, yes, really early, really early, and I even went to reel to reel in the really early days. You know, um, so when things are sort of buckling under. The, under the weight of everything that's kind of the real to real just kind of compressing it all but you know i i've yeah it, it's more of an aesthetic really i i have bounced things to cassette and vhs and all sorts of stuff like that and 
you know in some ways the go team's like an exercise in how we fuck things up you know it's about <laughs> distortion and and stuff like that but you know in the early days people would would complain that it was too lo-fi and, and even even write letters of complaint that there's something wrong with their cd or something you know <laughs> some German, like, you know something I've got a faulty CD here, you know. Um, but for me, the the uh, production is intrinsic to it. You know, it's not just a recorder. It's a recorder with distortion on it, you know. <laughs> it's pretty crucial difference for me, you know. It's all, it's, 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 it's all interlinked and it's all essential, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm all right thinking you've produced every album along with your brother with some of them as well. Yeah, the first few were with my bro, um, so that was cool. Um, the last few I've mixed myself, yeah, even though I kind of don't know what I'm doing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all a balancing act. It's about, you know, energy without kind of fatigue, you know. You can, you can a whole album of... You know can get a bit draining so i think light and shade is a bit more in the front of my mind these days and contrast and and drops and stuff like that you know um that's why bands like the pixies were so big is that people love the drop people love contrast and stuff you know yeah yeah and then like did you find yourself with you at the wheel for everything kind of thing did you find yourself being a bit of a perfectionist or did you know when to like put it down kind of thing? Kind of. I mean, it's not really a word you associate with the band, really, because <laughs> it's, it is apparently so kind of ramshackle. Um, but yeah, undoubtedly, I I think I think the perfectionist thing comes at the melody stage, really. I think once you've got that locked down, that's sort of ninety percent of the work, really, and everything else just makes it better. Uh, but I'm not kind of. S- like a sort of Kevin Shields esque, you know, um, frequency nerd, you know, where everything has to. It's it is quite, um, yeah. I, th- I think that the, the perfectionist thing comes from the creation stage where you're just hoarding these ide- ideas for weeks and years and months and finding a home for it. So I don't know if many people would would have the patience to go through all these samples daily you know um <laughs> people might would would get pretty tired of that shit but i i will happily you know listen to you know italian soundtrack 60 soundtracks for a month or something like that you know <laughs> <laughs> and put it in my pile of good shit and yeah and like and so generally the process of that gathers um samples but also triggers ideas so i'm never i think i've never had the never had writer's block because my 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 writing process is that i just will just listen to music all day and it will generate ideas and stuff like that so i'm never you know sitting in a a room with my guitar going oh what should i do now you know um it's always generated by other stuff and it's a really good way of kind of loosening up your brain and so yeah i mean i listen to hundreds hundreds of records every day when i'm in the songwriting phase you know yeah yeah and 
Did you have you like ever picked up songwriting techniques from elsewhere? Has it always been like kind of what worked for you kind of thing? Really, um, I don't know if it's something you can really um, pick up. Really, I mean, I mean, I think I've got more into lyric writing in the last few years, and the kind of the idea that you know the chorus. I like the I like the process of coming up with a melody and then the kind of stream of consciousness. What is um, what kind of jumps out to go along with that? So I had on the last album I had a song called which went da 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 da. So the the melody that came out of that was going nowhere. That just seemed to make sense. I like that song, yeah. And um, and then and then the. The, the question becomes the, the the verse is kind of answering the question which the chorus is posing you know so i'm I'm kind of quite gotten quite into that idea of the kind of the classic structure of what lyrics should do and stuff like that um but yeah i mean there's all sorts of techniques i mean this dom from white horses had to use the trick of um reversing pop songs to see if it generates you know getting a bg song and flipping it around and see if that there's some kind of you know, there's lots of different tricks, but I I just think it's just purely just showing up, going and going and going, and one day, who knows, something might drop from the sky. Those moments, I love those moments where you've kind of almost given up for the day, and then one extra thing comes, and that's the, the that's the good shit, you know. Um, but a song like Mayday, you know, I mean, um, I mean, most of my songs are about six or seven ideas kind of shoved together and um and, and it's those moments where they kind of drop together um the fact that you know on may day the the m-a-y-d-a-y mayday mayday kind of naturally spelt itself out and then the idea of putting morse code on top of that instantly just just felt right and then you could put that in the chorus and then okay so the lyrics have got to be about someone who's in trouble somewhere so i like those sort of 60s songs about girls those sort of melodramatic girls in heartbreak kind of situations um so it kind of made sense for it to be about some kind of chick in trouble you know <laughs> so yeah i mean it, it, sometimes it happens it falls from the sky and it comes together other other weeks you can go you know go forever without anything happening you know yeah yeah and i might be reading this wrong but i think i read that um one of the techniques was like you'd you'd have you'd have ideas for chords for a song but instead of creating them yourself you go to look to look in samples to find the different chords and pull uh, them together is that right that's, that's not really a songwriting pick that i mean that's when the song is locked down i would like the idea of so I mean, the, the the worst example of using samples is where you just kind of get somebody else's cool song and stick a beat on it, maybe some rapping and call it a song. But so I kind of want to get as far away from that as possible. So I like the idea of writing your own song and then building it from different chords. So you get the G from an electro song, a D from a Northern Soul song, whatever. So you're making it much more sort of channel hoppy. So, yeah, I've always been into that idea. And I think. I could explore that a lot more. I think. I think there's a lot more mileage in that. It's quite a hard thing to get right. Um, yeah. I mean, even when I was in university, I made a film called Channel Hopping, and which was quite sort of cut and pasty and stuff. So, this idea of choppiness has always been there as as a 
and I set a goal and I still think there's so much mileage in that that no one's really uh nailed properly I don't think that you can have both an amazing song and something that's just really wobbly and and cut up and schizo and all that yeah 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 it's interesting um so just going back to the timeline type of thing um I'm right thinking you started it just as a solo project that was the idea wasn't the idea but it it happened to be that way and that I was just doing it all um I always knew it would never just be me on a stage you know that wasn't an option um I, I knew I wanted to have a gang it's just that that was the way round I did it I knew that um I wanted it to be a mixture of blokes and ladies lots lots to do with the kind of the climate of the time you know in the 2000s it was very um nme kind of male boys club wet dream fest you know it was um lads on tour you know the skinny jean brigade and I, so i kind of wanted to get away from that and have a much more of a diverse um mixed race potentially male and female um technicolor you know try and get away from that kind of lads on tour kind of um enemy type image so yeah i knew that that was the key to making it real and um instrument swapping had to be there just because the songs are so varied you know double drumming i've always liked bands which do double drumming because it looks cool and it sounds good. It's a bit showy off either. Um, yeah, I mean, and so people that can play lots of instruments, they had to be in there, you know, um, just because of the nature of the music, you know. Um, people often talk about the Go Team kind of all sounding the same, but I'm kind of thinking, really, you know, you know, I think it's quite, I think the, the, the the brief is pretty broad really i think there is something which flows between everything but um i think yeah i mean you know i i think i think of it as a compliment in a way that is quite recognizable but i don't really think it's that true you know no yeah definitely yeah um and with the enemy then like you mentioned all that was going on in terms of like the boys in the band type vibe but then you were doing tours with them like uh did you do an enemy freshest tour <laughs> or something yeah. i can't i chalked that up as one of the regrets yeah that was all a, right that was a bad move yeah how come uh it was just lame it, i i i mean i've always hated the enemy so <laughs> <laughs> kind of kind of yeah he sold out mm. fair enough would they not quite were they quite supportive though, the enemy or not really? Uh they blew hot and cold. Okay. It was literally from week to week. Who knew? Yeah. They yeah. Luckily they don't really we don't have that problem anymore. Of, of, yes. of, of that kind of bitchiness in the music press, you know, who could make or break someone overnight. Luckily, we have just people just in the time it takes to read a music review, they can listen to the song on Spotify and make their own mind up, I suppose. You know, I guess that's the difference, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, like, you know, we've had a lot of negative chat about the age of streaming, but I guess that's one of the positives that people can make their own mind up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, 
talking of people who were supporting John Peel, did he get into the that first EP? Like, how did he hear it? Did you send him it? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I was on a tiny little bedroom label called Pickled Egg Records, and he, we, they must have sent it to Peel, and yeah, that was the first play. It's funny how you make music, how everything just happens in in stages, and you get get to the first stage. You know, Peel playing, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was fantasy land, and then. And then the idea of making an album, okay, I've never thought of making an album. And then, so it just kind of comes in stages and then you get signed, then you go to a major and then you're buddy on Jules Holland and then you're top of the pops and Japan. And, you know, it just, these things just kind of come in, in stages that you never thought would happen, you know. But um, I mean, I guess I'm, the thing I was most pleased with is that it was very kind of word of mouthy. Um, Particularly in the early days, it was, you know, everyone sort of tipping each other off and the internet, it was very sort of bloggy. There were kind of blog bands at the time, weren't there, in that in that sort of mid-90s, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it happened quite naturally. Um, and it seemed to be that just that this sort of tidal wave of, of people just kind of tipping each other off and... Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't have to sell out or anything or, you know, the, the label never said, OK, can you clean up that snare drum sound for Six Music or whatever? You know, I've never had that conversation. You know, they they knew that what the deal was. You know, I've had when we signed to a major briefly, I, I had that conversation. You know, they said, can you just hone it down a bit? And I was like, nope, probably not. <laughs> what, what point was that? Oh, sorry? What point was that? I remember when we did the Mercury Awards. Okay. Um, some, some I think it must have been from Sony or something sidled up to me and had that conversation. You know, you didn't kind of they didn't grasp that that was a part a part of it and a key part. You know, so yeah, sure enough, we were not on a major for the second album <laughs> for, that, for that reason. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, at what point were you playing lives after? Is it before the first album or after the first album? No, I mean the album was out there and was getting heat pretty pretty soon. Um, and then the offers started coming in, and particularly this one in Sweden, this um, really hipster festival called Accelerator. And I, I agreed to do it, but didn't have a band. So, that, so the the clock was ticking, you know. Um, the hardest one to find was Ninja, was to find, you know, a lead singer, someone who could kind of, you know, put the put the go in, go team, you know. Um, uh, and everyone else, yeah, was it was pretty much, you know, do you want to do it? Okay, you're in the band, you know. <laughs> and we'd we'd had we had band practices um, in King's Cross and. Ninja just didn't open her mouth to sing for for weeks. Really, I'd turn up at the practice, we'd be playing them, and she just was just watching it, just just in her brain, just um, thinking where where do I fit in all this? You know, she was she was psyching herself up. You know, I could see I could see it was I knew I kind of had a feeling that she was going to come good, but it was pretty fucking sketchy. Yeah. And then we got to Sweden. First night was a bit shit. Second night was a bit shit. Third night, 
I remember thinking, okay, we could probably pull this off. You know, I think this could actually be a genuine live experience, you know. Um, and then things started coming in really quickly, you know, just the fucking, the hype was just ridiculous. You know, Jules Holland, Top of the Pops, offers from around the world, Australia, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, we never had to work hard at it at all. There was no kind of backroom pub pub tours <laughs> slogging our way around Britain. It was straight in. It was too, it happened too quickly, really. You know, it was... Um, I'd have preferred to have been one of those slow burn bands, I think, because we were our set list was so short. I mean, we were... We, you know, I don't the album Thunderlightning Strike was only like 35 minutes long or something. So it was like, thank you, good night, you know, <laughs> and five songs or something. So people would, would inevitably leave the gig thinking, what was that it? You know, and it was like, oh, fucking hell, man, we've only been together for a few months, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was the same in America. We, 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 we sold out everywhere. It really touched, really touched a nerve over there, you know, lots, lots of pitchfork and that. But I think, I think it's because it kind of fell from the sky as this kind of um, fully formed idea, I guess. You know, it was this coherent kind of vision that flowed through the whole album. You know, um, that, yeah, don't know, touched a nerve and 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 it was quite original. That's the thing I remember when the when the album was mixed. I remember thinking, I didn't have any, didn't think it was going to do well or anything particularly. But I just remember thinking it's pretty fucking original. You know, I don't can't think of anyone anyone else that sounds like this. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. Hmm. And then just skipping back to recording that first album, and hmm. um, right, thinking you just did it with your brother while your parents were away in their house or something. Uh yeah, I mean, my bro only came in at the mixing stage, so okay. I, 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 yeah, it's there was a drum kit set up in their kitchen, and the, the the record button was downstairs in the basement, so I would hit record, then run up and try and do a take and fuck it up and come down again and just keep doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I like thinking, I like imagining those kind of kitcheny, bedroomy things with albums rather than spunking money in posh studios you know i like that feel of of doing stuff yourself um and yeah i mean i'm not a, a not an amazing musician or anything i'm, I'm you know i couldn't shred i couldn't do a guitar solo for you or anything but i guess i didn't need to you know the songs kind of did what they needed to do um so yeah if, if the reason it sounds like it's recording the garage it's because it was you know <laughs> but like, i feel like all the albums kind of maintain that kind of exciting sound to them that like lo-fi kind of in a lot of bands lose that kind of exciting sound like it's all new where you kind of like been able to maintain that. have you always like kind of recorded in the same way um i don't know if it's necessarily recording thing i think it's more about the songs really i think i think i mean i've always loved 
if you could encapsulate the sound, it, it would be in a crash symbol. You know, I think it's it's that sort of whooshiness of a crash symbol, which maybe is what flows through and it and it subconsciously conjures up excitement and stuff like that. But I think it's lo- lots of it's in the songwriting, really. I think I think hopefully that's what gives it the excitement. You know, I, I actually slog away in this, but I want it to sound like it was just thrown together, you know, that it's just 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 coming at you you know um yeah i mean excitement i think song should be exciting really um like i say i don't want to waste people's time you know i don't really want them to slog through some kind of um sing a songwritery let me sing about my life kind of thing i'll leave that <laughs> to people but i think um i mean it's the way i, I mean I, I always go back to motown really you know, I think they managed to capture excitement, you know, and I think it's in, in the distortion and, it, and it's the the urgency of it and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, people often bang on about happiness and stuff like that, you know, it, it should be prescribed in the NHS or whatever. Or, <laughs> um, you know, that's what I read all the time, but um, I'm never actively setting out to write happy songs. I wouldn't. It's never been a kind of a mission statement or anything, but I do think it's kind of a byproduct of that excitement thing, that kind of, you know, coming in your face kind of thing. Um, And it it seems to be some kind of songwriting quirk of mine that I can't get rid of. (laughs) You know, it's a weird thing that I wouldn't, you know, I couldn't... uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm naturally attracted to action-packed, dynamic uh, stuff. Uh, and it's, yeah, like I say, I think this kind of happy, the H word is the byproduct, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001, and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the youtube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion all links are in the description now back to the pod but yeah there's something with the samples on the first record as well is that right where you hadn't cleared them you just didn't think you'd get that kind of listen yeah to. i mean it was quite sort of guerrilla songwriting you know um I would like a song like Lady Flash had probably over 10, 12 samples in it, something like that. And they were all uncleared. So when we signed to a major, that's, you know, they weren't going to take the risk on that. So they had to go back through everything. And some people wouldn't say yes. And I had a musicologist kind of breathing down my neck going, oh, that's not different enough. And so it was an absolute pain in the bollocks. Um, And when you, 
when you when your brain is expecting a certain thing and it's not hearing that it's like really jarring and you can't quite unlist you can't unhear what it's supposed to be um so it's quite a painful process but i'm a lot more laid back about it now i don't i think my label just doesn't clear anything anymore <laughs> i mean uh, it's, it's so obscure i mean these are bloody these listening records you know from whatever you know no one knew this stuff but a major label just isn't doesn't have that ability to distinguish but you know um i mean it's thankfully it wasn't too bad i mean i i, I was willing to prioritize the song over money and publishing so i would clear something and keep it how it's supposed to be um because we went through the horrible horrible process of um a sample recreation which is oh that's a nasty world um there are some things which you can you can nail and other things you just can't it's an it's a complete x factor of mics session players uh, the room the vibe whatever you want to say there's some things you just can never recreate um so i was willing just to just to throw money at stuff to keep it as it's supposed to be you know so what would be the process that you'd be trying to recreate a sample that sounded different enough not to be kind of copyrighted uh sometimes it was just to get around the the master recording so we, we would or if there wasn't any publishing in it, say if it was just a drone or something, or we could save money by recreating it. Um, okay. That's all. Yeah. There's two different sides. There's the publishing and there's the mastering, which is the actual recording. Um, but, you know, often it's, it's that that's exactly what you're, you're, you're in the game for is, is, is that, that difference between stuff, you know, it's about tones and it's about the clash of stuff. So it's kind of your, losing the essence if you start making it this kind of homogenous coherent thing you want to see the joins you want it to sound like there's bloody sellotape over the you know over the cracks you know mm. yeah and then you mentioned ninja and i was reading on the listening party that um you know within a year of first having contact with her over email uh you were traveling the world mm. and yeah, playing the likes of Top of the Pops and stuff like how how mad was that really? If you can sum it up, what the whole the whole of that first year? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was it was simultaneously it was really unexpected. It was kind of stressful because it was all on my shoulders in a way. Um, you know, it, it was the it was the you know what do I do next kind of a question. <laughs> um but and we would literally not go home for two months you know it would be japan and then on to australia and you know we couldn't keep up you know we could literally have been on the road um but i think the live shows the actual physicality of the live shows and the the kind of that's that that's what keeps me going and that's what you know it's it's not a song we it's not a gig where you can just phone it in you just stand there knocking off chords it's we're all we all move with it and it was an un, an unspoken law of the band was that every every night we would give it everything you know um which kind of lends itself to the music and the name the band name but 
it was never like hey we're going to do this it was just a thing which happened you know so I think that's what carried me through was the the fun of playing live and jumping around and um and it and that's still the case you know it's it's modern life uh, normal life is quite humdrum but when you're on stage it's like it's life is more visceral and it's more exciting it's just everything's dialed up more and it's like you're living more in those in that hour you know yeah yeah and always interested in top of the pops like what was that experience like do you remember who else was playing <laughs> I don't remember who I remember Bell and Sebastian were on as well I, don't, I can't remember anyone else to be honest I mean it was amazingly soulless at that point <laughs> it was a Monday morning I think it was about 10 in the morning really Bloody with hell. about with about fucking 30 people they would just kind of shepherd around and push where they needed them to be uh half the band weren't actually in the country they were in Australia I think we were going to play there and they just went ahead so we had to kind of pretend the band we had to cobble a band with we had some fellow with a helmet on and <laughs> so it, it kind of wasn't the real band but um but yeah I mean it was one of those you know chalk it up you know because it was it was in its death I think it was literally one of the last few episodes they ever made so it's kind of one of those you know let's let's get it under our belts you know for for the grandkids sort of job you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then Mercury Prize nomination, is that kind of, I don't know, obviously seems like the most respected or one of the most respected awards to be up for. Was that a pretty cool at the time, obviously? Yeah, I mean, we were on, I think we were on, on tour in Seattle and I remember getting a text from our label saying it's Mercury a go-go. That was what the text said. Um, and I knew straight away that things would sort of change a bit when that happened you know um I mean I don't really rate the Mercury Prize to be honest I think it's a bit of a load of bollocks but you know it's certainly it's, it's really helpful for young bands um and it was a really it's just an interesting night you know just the industry the, the music industry was quite different around then it, it was it was kind of in though you know it was in the kind of the final years of the traditional music industry of the kind of the coked up um music lawyers everywhere you know the lot of money knocking around you know it was the, still in the kind of the glory days of the music industry i think so it's quite interesting just to be around that in fact it was it, the whole experience of, of living in the two of existing through the downfall of the music industry is you know is interesting you know we were we were kind of in the right at the point where people were still buying records and you know i've got a gold disc in my, in my wall in there you know because it, it sold like two hundred fifty thousand. this is because people were still buying records you know people wouldn't it just doesn't happen anymore you know um so yeah it was it was interesting to be that around at that time in the, the, those the end of the the good times for the uh for the labels um so yeah it was just it was just a, an interesting night i knew i knew that it was a one-off and you know make the most of it you know yeah yeah and like you've mentioned you're kind of like strong-minded enough to do your own thing in terms of the music was it the same with social stuff like that and like the typical idea of touring did you kind okay. of do your own thing 
How do you mean? M- me personally or as a band? Yeah, both really. Oh, uh, we, we'd have a laugh on the road, to be honest. I mean, yeah, it was. We weren't a traditional uh, lads on tour type band, but I don't think that was ever going to happen. Um, you know, like Ninja doesn't drink. I don't think she's ever drunk. You know, <laughs> so it was always going to be a different dynamic to um, um, to the yeah the classic mythology around the rock band. You know, um. But Ninjas doesn't need to drink. She's she's got the most bloody psychedelic brain I've ever known. You know, she's like <laughs> she doesn't literally doesn't need to. She's she's a handful enough already. You know, um. So yeah, we we I mean, in a way, we were. It was always going to be, you know, and I remember I remember some Sunday Times journalists following us around. And in the piece commented about how kind of, um, you know, there were no groupies or anything like that, <laughs> you know, and I took him, I, I, I spelled out before. It's like, we're not fucking baby shambles. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're, we're just, yeah, just having a laugh on tour. That's about it. You know what I mean? Um, so I've never, you know, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're not Motley crew, but we're not buddy. The Carpenters either, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw at one point you played with um, LCD Sound System. I was just interested in how much... Uh, I, don't that... really, I don't think that's true. Oh, oh no. really? I thought you said you played with them and Soul Wax at some point. Uh, I mean, we were on the big day out in Australia with them. All oh, right. Uh, I don't remember at all playing with them. I think it was in, said it was in London. And the... Um... Juliet Lewis's band are playing. Oh right, okay. I think I've forgotten about that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was way early. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember Juliet Lewis. I don't remember the other two. Ah, fair enough. Because I just wondered how I, much I think they, they probably were. They are. I don't know if I grasped the occasion. Yeah. <laughs> I just um just wondered how much you're into like the whole DFA thing, if at all, with like the Rapture and LCD sound system. Uh, bits and pieces, yeah. I mean, it hasn't particularly been an influence. I mean, I remember um, hearing a Too Many DJs song um, where they um, they mixed the Stooges and, and uh, Salt and Pepper. And I remember thinking, bloody hell, man, why isn't anyone making a band that aged at that? You know, why can't there be a band that sounds like the Stooges and Salt and Pepper, you know. So I, I guess that was, um, I, I guess the, the real reason is that those worlds don't really collide, you know. Is so they're physically separated. So I, I think that was part of the, the idea on the mission statement of the band was to try and, uh, you know, bring a kind of white, black and white music, together in this kind of. Uh, unself-conscious, natural, why doesn't this exist already kind of way, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask about, you mentioned, I think, um, maybe on the listening party that when, you know, you got the band together, that like the likes of Ninja kind of would change the way you went about things in terms of like maybe she would freestyle over certain things. Yeah, right? I mean, we weren't trying to slavishly 
copy the album. I mean, I I, I would let be up for Ninja changing stuff a, a bit along the way because you know I want her to feel involved and have some say in, in it and stuff. Um, yeah, uh, she wasn't exactly freestyling, but she did write lyrics here and there. Yeah, okay. And then with a song like um, a version of myself, did you write that? Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just interesting. It sounds like I don't know. I had like a moldy peaches vibe to it. That I thought, yeah, um, maybe it was influenced by someone else. But it's interesting that you wrote that as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, our drummer Kai used to sing that one. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's cool sounding. Um, and. Yeah, just like in terms of, um, in terms of like other bands, then were you, were you good friends with other bands, or were you just doing your own thing, really? Uh, there's certain bands we would cross paths with uh, along the way. Um, back in the day, I mean, yeah, I mean, people like that we would kind of get to people we probably don't remember now. People like the research, and I remember them, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean we didn't we, we we kind of saw ourselves as a kind of a standalone and that still do as a standalone not really part of a scene, really. And I still think that's the case. Certainly musically, I couldn't really I mean we we, we kind of it's interesting because we like we lived through um what they called new rave, you know. <laughs> The, the kind of the klaxons, CSS, who else was there? Um, okay, yeah. MGMT, I don't know. The Young Pony Club, yeah. And we can't, it's interesting, we've kind of, those bands have fallen by the wayside, but we're still here, you know. Um, that was an interesting time. There, there were bands that you could kind of naturally associate with us, maybe like MIA, um, yeah, CSS, certainly, you know. So we kind of, for a minute there, we we felt there were vaguely aesthetically similar bands, but I never really thought we were the same, but you could kind of um, vaguely lump us in. Yeah, but I, I, I always thought of us as a standalone thing. Mainly, like I said earlier, it's, it's mainly the kind of the mindset of it being coming from a kind of a noise angle than a clubby angle so when people kind of lumped us in as i say hey you're a party band you know i always squirmed a little bit of that because i i thought the kind of the chaotic element kind of put put us a, a barrier around us in some way you know mm. uh, but working with chuck d i mean it was that a big moment obviously Yes. Um, I, I mean, he was the first male um, singer on any Goatim song, and I think that's still the case now, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, the song that I, he appeared on, Flashlight Fight, just naturally sort of lent itself to him. I could I could just hear him already before, it, you know. And we asked him um, fucking way back, and he was just it was there was radio silence and then like six months later he popped up and said oh do you still want me to do it so it was like yeah and it we weren't in the same room um but 
yeah i mean i think he dug the song i think he likes us and um you know i mean public enemy is ridiculous they're they're again i think they're like a unique band um the the way that they sampled and the way they kind of chop stuff up and yeah that kind of element of chaos if you listen to how much is going on it's it's almost like buddy industrial music or something you know it's almost like concrete they use like sound effects and all sorts of mental stuff um so yeah i mean they've always been a big influence you know yeah yeah and would you did you write the lyrics for his for his part or did he kind of have some influence no No, he he did his thing yeah oh cool and then after the third album was the idea that you were gonna split up so to speak or stop doing Um, things for a while well it was it was kind of that that lineup naturally ran its course because some of the members couldn't carry on and stuff like that um so i I didn't really think of stopping the band but i was thinking um yeah maybe a lineup change or something i didn't know particularly know what would happen to be honest but it was i thought i would try and write a more melodic more kind of pop more more melody driven song than you know the car chase and sirens double dutch thing that everyone had, had assumed would always do you know so i was kind of did the scene between which is much more about songwriting and melody and stuff like that you know yeah i really enjoyed that album um and i was a reading uh you deliberately chose like kind of relatively unknown singers to work with on that album yeah i mean i often if you use a guest vocalist that becomes the story of the record you know like i'm rolling back out so everyone kept banging on about best coast being on it or something so and i'm a big fan of voices that are on the edge of uh professionalism or something however you want to say it you know um there's only certain particular kinds of voices i like I'm a, i've got a phobia of like over singing or that kind of, um, you know, the modern way that people sing these days where it's kind of, uh, it's almost like a, a facsimile of emotion. You know, it's they kind of go through the motions of what they think singing is, you know. And so I'm trying to kind of tap into more of a bedroom way of singing, uh, more like a friend who's got a good voice or something like that, rather than, hey, I am a singer. Uh, and I'm going to sing professionally and well over this song, you know. So I was more interested in that, finding that, tracking down people all around the world that had interesting voices. And um, yeah, so yeah, that's what I did. And mo- most of them were pretty unknown. There were lots of sort of band campy type people in there, you know, uh, a gospel choir and stuff like that. But yeah, I, 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 th- I mean, it kind of went under the radar, that record, because it didn't fit the idea of what we were supposed to be, I think. But yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, you mentioned the best curse thing. Like, how did how did that come about? Uh, I think it was just a MySpace discovery, to be honest. She wasn't well known at the time. I think, I mean, I had this song by Nothing Day that I knew the kind of voice. I knew I wanted this kind of West Coast, you know, sun-drenched kind of voice and 
I can't remember how I found her. It was literally, I think it was MySpace and a random email. And then in the intervening six months, you got hyped to hyped to fuck. But, <laughs> but yeah, I I still I still think by nothing day is probably one of the defining go team moments, you know. Yeah, I was reading it got a lot of um a lot of attention, a lot of praise, yeah. Yeah. Uh I mean I'm I'm pleased with it as well because it didn't fit into the um cheerleader stereotype you know it was it was a stepping stone to uh singing rather than shouting you know yeah yeah and then so with the uh so with the albums oh, is that a good question i was gonna say like has ninja sung on most of the albums or not really uh certainly from two and three she wasn't on four because we were kind of taking a break and then she was on five yeah she's on all of them to some degree yeah apart from well she's even on the thunderlying strike on the second version yeah okay cool um and then i was reading like 2021 some kind of loss of hearing that you suffered or something that's right yeah what uh, so yeah, it was October 21, a normal Thursday, I believe it was. Got up and realised something had changed in my hearing. And it was like all the fucking bass had gone from my right ear. And it kind of fluctuated over the weeks and it became like Dalek-y at some time. Like, um, so it's almost like you were hearing two songs playing at once, which is fucking really trippy. And obviously I was panicking. Because I thought, oh man, I'm never going to be able to um, play live or even listen mix records or anything. You know, if you imagine, if you imagine when you speak on a microphone, it's got feedback on it. So there's like a note. It was like that. So it's music just sounded absolutely mental. Uh, at the first, when it first happened, I thought it was because I never wear earplugs on stage, and I I, I used to love that. I used to crave that onslaught of volume you know so i thought it finally caught up with me but it turned out well someone looked at my ear and said he got wax in there i got it taken out and nothing changed and that was the moment when it dawned on me oh, i'm in trouble here and it was like that shot in in jaws when it's like a crash zoom and i i just knew um oh, i just thought oh my god here we go this is properly serious now you know so yeah it kind of changed over a few weeks it kind of changed a little bit up and down getting better worse and then it kind of just stuck being bad and I there was a point where somebody told me I, I for mo for those three weeks I, I thought it's going to come back and it will go back to normal but then one visit to the hospital confirmed that it's gone for good and that's when it um and yes so I, I think the the next six months or to a year there was some kind of almost ptsd kind of vibe going down you know um of trying to get my head around it um and bizarrely enough a similar thing happened to sam our other guitarist where he lost his hearing overnight as well um but I mean, it was and it was literally in the middle of making Get Up Sequences Part One, 
um so halfway through the album just lost my hearing basically on, on this on my right side um so yeah that wasn't ideal that kind of slowed everything down and if you can imagine songs i'd known i could hear properly and now i could only hear half of it but you know i kind of carried on and mixed it you know kind of pan things around as i thought it should be i was kind of guessing a little bit got a few professionally types to have a little listen over and stuff so i kind of muddled through it and i think it was actually helpful the whole process of um not just taking my mind off something but um but also surrounding myself in that music you know it's quite um it's quite weird to be surrounding yourself in so-called upbeat music or however whatever you want to call it but actually be kind of vaguely traumatized you know <laughs> so i think it was actually a, a helpful process and i think i called it like a life raft at the time you know yeah yeah um what was the reason for it was it being exposed to a lot of nod musical it's this, it's this quite a rare thing called many disease it's um oh, yeah, right, okay. people don't exactly know what it what it is or how it happened or there's no real reason for it it just happens so um uh the first thing i read was it's more damaging to um your quality of life than cancer it's like oh fuck brilliant <laughs> but it, it hasn't it hasn't turned out to be that at all it's just that i can't hear it's it's fine it's it's, it's turned out to be fine it, it didn't pan out to be as bad in its current state as i thought it would be and i can still fucking make music and i could still jump around on stage so it's not much else to it you know yeah yeah well, i think i worked with someone who had that did, did ryan adams have it as well i think ryan adams that's right exactly yeah he had to give up touring he he would literally it affects your balance and he would literally just be standing there on stage and then be on the floor the next minute you know it it you can have these vertigo attacks where you literally just go and hit the floor and the whole room spinning i haven't had that so far so i'm probably the lucky one one of the lucky ones at the minute yeah but yeah, yeah. uh who else had it uh huey lewis of huey lewis and the news oh, really? <laughs> i think chris packham's got it as well anyway it, it, it's it's not a massive deal so it's cool okay nice one um yeah with the filmmaking then have you have you carried that on at all or was it just put to the side when you started music i make lots of the music videos okay uh, cool like the last few like Whammyo and Look Away, The Me Frequency, I made all of those. And I've I've almost always got, a, on tour, I've always got a Super 8 camera with me. That's, I'm obsessed with Super 8 and I just, just, just document stuff. Um, film off the screen, I've got a, a Super 8 camera next to the TV so I can just, if there's any cool shots, I just, just capture it all. Um, so yeah, in the same way that I hoard melody ideas, I hoard these little shots on my Super 8 camera, and I keep notebooks and 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 my phone full of like slogans and stuff like that. So I think a big part of the process for me is is, is hoarding and digging it out when the time comes. You know, biding your time, hanging on to that chorus or that sample or that break or whatever, and and choosing your moment to use it. You know, because I'm sitting on good stuff all the time that i'm just waiting for a home you know 
waiting for that perfect moment to slot it in, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you've been playing festivals this year, is that right? Like, how have they been? Yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the band lineup's shit hot, you know. They're all proper, proper shredders, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, they actually warm up on their instruments and stuff like that you know i'm i'm just an absolute gibbon on guitar really um uh we, yeah we've done some interesting ones we played with nile rogers on a couple of shows that's kind of interesting just to see just the, the slickness of that operation it's a bit of a sight to behold yeah we did some killer ones man we did uh crank and house that's a really nice one have you ever been to that no no what is uh, that up in the Lake District. Um, oh, it's not too far away from me, actually. Uh, and Blue Dot. That was a good uh, one. Oh, yeah. It's just up the road from you, I guess. Okay, cool. Did he do some kind of live thing with Tim Burgess for that? It's a listening party thing. That's right. A live listening party, yeah. That's quite cool. Yeah. Um. Okay, great. And then you got some... Is it one show you've got or, or a few shows for the, uh, the anniversary of the first album? Yeah, I mean, there's one... Major one next uh next February in the Roundhouse where we're playing Thunder Lightning Strike from start to finish for the first time ever, and including quite a few songs, well, a few songs which we've never played live, you know, more the sort of piano-y ones and stuff. So that'd be cool. Yes. Um, and that's that's undoubtedly going to sell out by looking at the ticket sales and stuff. Um, so that'll cool be venue a, as well. Yeah, yeah that'll be a night to remember. And I think we're going to do some US dates and stuff as well. And yeah, just keep keep going, keep keep on keeping on. Yeah, is that the kind of ambition now? Just to like, don't know really, just see how it goes. Keep keep going, kind of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, ne- next year is going to be is is twenty years since Done Like Strike, so I guess there'll be some stuff around that. As much as I'm uh, unsure about that concept, but. Fuck it. Um but, <laughs> but uh yeah, I'm I'm yeah, I mean I always think that there's always more stuff to try with the go team. You know, I've never really had the sense that it's hit it's reached the end of the road or anything. In fact, I'm kind of overwhelmed with the possibility, you know. Um uh yeah, I still think there's loads of stuff we haven't tried and you know, we could go in so many different directions. You know, we could go more marching band or we could go noisier or whatever, you know. Um so yeah. Yeah. Who do you um do you bounce ideas off certain people in that respect? Like the band or or anyone? Uh normally quite late down late down the road. Maybe my my partner, um but not really. No, it's 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 normally quite a way down the line before I do that. Um, yeah, I I think my my kid, my nine year old was quite interesting because he uh, he's musical in a similar way to me. So he kind of sings songs all day, and sometimes I catch him singing goatim songs. Like he's he's always singing goatim songs around the house. It's really interesting. So I um and if it's a one I haven't released yet, that's particularly interesting, you know. Like there's a particular one he keeps singing. And I was like, okay, maybe that one's worth pursuing, you know. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's a good good test, the, the kid test, you know. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. Um and then yeah, cheers for your time. Uh, just finish on a few questions. Um I always like to ask people if they've got like a, a funny story. I'll, I'll put the Gallagher brothers, but just about maybe a big name in music or a big event or something. I know uh, we were playing at a uh, festival once and um, James Brown was playing at it when he was still alive. And Ninja went and knocked, went along all the, um, <laughs> I think it was like Norway or something. She went down all the corridors, knocking on all the doors. And eventually Mrs. Brown um, answered the door and she <laughs> she uh, said, can you, James is James Brown there or something? She said, I oh, know he's asleep now, but she gave something for him to sign. And obviously he didn't, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's ninja for you. <laughs> Fair play. Um, how, obviously festivals are massive now, aren't they? Like there's so many, mm. but like, how, how has that changed over the years? Is that like, how does that suit your, your lifestyle festivals? I, I'm, not a fan of festivals to be honest i i, I much prefer our own gigs um i like the, the audience being near i hate those massive buddy stay you know i think if you're indoors in a tent in a festival late at night it's cool like we were in blue dot that's heavenly but uh, yeah i much prefer our own shows i think they're much more sweaty and i don't know people just get it more yeah yeah I'm, yeah I'm too miserable for festivals <laughs> should be a t-shirt with that one <laughs> um and then yeah two to finish on mate like what's been the high point so far and is there anything you you'd have done differently um i mean for me it's i mean it's it's the fact that we're still here is quite a big it's quite a big deal when like i said all the all well, our contemporaries have fallen by the wayside, and I think we're kind of as good, and I think the music is as good as it was. Um, yeah, I mean, for, for me, the highlight is always playing Japan. It's almost like I'm just killing time until we get to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> That's the prize. Um, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of little things I've done differently, like drop that taking that song off that album or put that one on or not done the enemy tour <laughs> <laughs> but generally uh yeah i think i think i mean i think all of all a band can do is to try and kind of leave your mark and i think if you said that's go teamy or that sounds like the go team i think people would know what you meant and i think if you leave your mark, your own vision, your own way of seeing the world and seeing music, um, I think we there is a, a proper legacy to the band, and I think you know, I think people could go on exploring it and stuff because I think we're kind of still under the radar, you know, which is fine, but you know, yeah, so I'm kind of happy, really. Cool, and nearly forgot the uh, questions that came in. Um, so let's have a quick look at them. Um, yeah, well, 
someone mentioned on Instagram, they said it wasn't really a question, but um, Sam Venton just said massively underrated band should <laughs> should have and deserve to be massive. <laughs> That's what I just said. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, is that something you feel like he bothered? It doesn't bother me, but I think it's true. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know if it's the production. I don't know if it's the uh, because it's a male female. I don't know, but I don't think too hard about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Andy Munch on Twitter says, "Ask if he can join the band." Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> um, and then Dan Bunton said, "When are you going to America?" Ah, uh, we haven't announced it yet, but we are. Then next year, yeah.